0: This is 3P Theory, the podcast for AEC professionals seeking to elevate their knowledge on green building strategies and practical design collaboration for sustainable mindsets, bringing you change makers, innovators, and sustainable leaders who have positively impacted the industry. It's time to get inspired, motivated, and fired up to take action towards a greener planet. Here's your host, Mike Brown. Welcome everyone to another episode of the 3P Theory podcast. Today, I have a really interesting guest that's going to be joining us to talk about a, a major issue and major uh, topic of concern that a lot of people should be educated on, more specifically in the North Texas area that could offer some opportunities. So I'm bringing to you guys uh, Lori Clark with the North Central Texas Council of Governments, and she's going to be um, kind of taking a, a deep dive into air quality, uh, giving us some stats and metrics about the current health of or outdoor air quality in the North Texas area, and also how businesses and homeowners could help minimize their impact uh, with respect to uh, air quality. Lori, right, thanks for, for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, well, I guess the first question I usually start a lot of my interviews off with is, you know, just to kind of get a little bit of background information on yourself and how you really got into the air quality realm and working for the North Texas Council of Governments?
1: Sure so I guess I've you know I've always been interested in environmental issues since before I can remember and have always been really interested specifically in things that can be done in I guess areas that impact everybody's day-to-day lives and so transportation I think is is one of those areas growing up we used to Always complain in my family, like driving around, like why is this light red? Everybody has to sit here and wait, and the car's burning fuel, and you know, those little experiences, which translated into what I studied in college, and I actually wrote a thesis as I was graduating on transportation control strategies to reduce air pollution, and as it turns out, that's exactly what I work on now, which is I think pretty rare uh, that you actually do something that is so closely aligned with what you studied in school, but I mean. took a detour into into a couple other fields before I landed here at COG, but have been here for about 14 years, started off in a little bit more of a technical position, kind of looking at specific roadway improvements that can be done to improve air quality, things like adding dedicated right turn lanes, help reduce congestion and reduce idling, because everybody can go ahead and proceed and turn right on red, you know, little things like that that you might not think about. and timing traffic signals so that traffic can flow more smoothly from one end of town to the other, and then transition into our what we call management and operations side of the team. And so I manage a variety of clean vehicle programs, as well as our Dallas-Fort Worth Clean Cities Coalition, which is all about kind of traditionally been about improving air quality by increasing use of alternative fuel vehicles, which, of course, now has a big focus on electric vehicles. But also the system as a whole, reducing idling, um, improving efficiency of the transportation system, especially as connected and autonomous vehicles come out. That's something that we'll be looking at more and more.
0: Oh, great! Yeah, no, that's a big, a big topic too with the autonomous vehicles. I mean, emerging, you know, technologies. Uh, it's just going to change a lot around some of that infrastructure. And I know some of the more progressive cities like Frisco uh, and maybe even Plano are starting to implement uh, some of the IoT integration with transportation systems, even for certain vehicles and manufacturers. I think Audi is one of them where, you know, they can basically time your route and plan your route to be able to have smooth transitions, you know, through those stoplights if you're traveling, you know, in the city. So it's an interesting, interesting time. So I'm I'm excited. I'm not sure how excited you are, but just about what's (laughs) coming. (laughs)
1: Exciting slash overwhelmed. It's all in flux. And so this is definitely a time that you wish you had a crystal ball because from a planning perspective it would help a lot to sure. <laughs> be able sure. to predict what's going to be adopted more quickly than than other things so
0: yeah yeah that uncertainty starts to increase <laughs> quite a bit <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah you know uh, one of the resources you shared with me which we'll have available to our listeners as well that's provided on your website is the air quality handbook which Mm -hmm. talks about some of the the metrics, what they mean, and things of that nature. I think it's really useful, even for just the, you know, the common citizen to kind of understand what those metrics, what they mean, and how they impact their everyday lives and the broader community. So within that, and maybe some of the the work that you guys are doing, how would you describe, uh, I guess, the current health of air quality in North Texas? And, you know, why do you think that is, you know, is it as good as we would expect, um, and even comparable to maybe some other Texas cities like Austin and Houston?
1: Sure. Well, first, I'm glad that you thought that the Air Quality Handbook was a, was a good way to kind of explain to the general public what the situation is. That's exactly why we put it together, kind of trying to put together something that we can hand out to people. That's kind of our Air Quality 101 background presentation that that we give to community meetings every once in a while. So, So I'm glad to hear that. But our air quality in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is in a state of improvement. So we do violate the federal ozone standards. And the reason that's important, you know, it's a matter of day-to-day life is that ozone is a respiratory irritant. So it can, it can harm your respiratory health. It can also have um, consequences for plants and the built environment, but it's, it's really our lungs that suffer the most. And so what non attainment means is that there's a federal standard set by the EPA to protect human and environmental health, and our ozone is higher than what EPA says it should be, and it's measured on a rolling eight-hour basis. The good news is our ozone has gotten far, far lower um, in the last 20 years or so um, than it was. I think we started keeping track of our ozone levels back in the late 90s, so we actually keep a trend line that starts with it's a three year average, a rolling three year average. And so we start with 1999 to 2001, we were all the way up at 101 parts per billion of ozone in part per billion quantity of air. And we've come all the way down to 77. Wow. So it's a lot of improvement in the last, I guess, what is that 20 years? So we want people to understand that there's been a lot of progress. Now we know we need to do more. Uh, one of the things that can be frustrating Is that EPA changes these standards, and so in uh, 1997, EPA set the standard to be 85 parts per billion. Well, then they looked at it again in 2008, and they reduced it to 75. They looked at it again in 2015, they reduced it to 70. So we're kind of chasing a moving line, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because EPA is always resetting these to be protective of health, but it does mean that we think we're trying to get to one point and then, and then the line moves a little bit. And so we have to work a little bit harder. So all that to say there's been a lot of progress, but do we still have a good ways to go. So right now our air quality is 77 parts per billion of ozone as our design value. That's the, uh, the three-year average of the fourth highest day. So we can have three days that have really bad ozone, but it's that fourth day that really matters and that also means people should understand we could have very few high ozone days where you know 360 out of 365 days our ozone is is within the standards but it's those five days that we go above that knock us into non-attainment so you know sometimes the there are headlines about the ozone and dallas fort worth is worse than it's ever been and and there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of detail that goes into really understanding that. And so we want everybody to understand we are really working hard to make the area even cleaner, but we should also appreciate the work that's already been done.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I know that, you know, there's been projects that I've worked on, you know, in certain areas like Denver or Salt Lake City where there's definitely some some natural things due to the topography and things of nature with the local region that kind of enhance some of the bad air quality. And, you know, even as designers and architects and engineers, we have to try to understand the, the context of that particular region and kind of design facilities to help, you know, mitigate or minimize that if, if mm-hmm. possible. Because I think it's definitely something that people are paying more attention to. And it's a topic that's going to start to grow you know, very similar to energy and water conservation in terms of the quality that's being provided by, you know, buildings and cities and things of that nature in trying to, you know, reduce carbon and discarbon emissions.
1: Right, right. And on that note, in terms of um, buildings and, and design and new construction and things like that. Whenever we talk about ozone, the number one source of our ozone pollution in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is from the transportation sector. It's about two-thirds of all of the ozone-forming pollution comes from transportation. And I say ozone-forming pollution because ozone is not something that comes out of a tailpipe or out of a smokestack. It's a photochemical reaction. So you have different pollutants that come out of tailpipes and out of smokestacks. They mix in the presence of sunlight and heat, and then they produce ozone. So in order to reduce ozone, you actually have to reduce other things. And one of the other things you have to reduce is volatile organic compounds. And one of the sources of volatile organic compounds can be paint. And so for your listeners who are working in design and architecture and things like that, looking at the glues, the adhesives, the paints, things like that, that go into the built environment has a direct impact on the amount of ozone that gets formed. In our region, Nitrogen oxides, which is a byproduct of combustion, is more important, but they both play a role. And so that's something for everybody to just be aware of. And a homeowner, if you go to repaint a room in your house, it's a good thing to ask for low VOC paint. And one, you won't smell that new paint smell, which <laughs> I I don't know. Some people might like it. It gives me a headache, but but it's not an automatic thing that you get low VOC paint. So that's something to make sure you ask for to reduce your impact of it on the environment, but also reduce your own exposure to those, those volatile comp-
0: compounds. Yeah. And no, I'm, cl- I'm actually really glad you mentioned that because we are in the process of utilizing, you know, new developments with healthy building materials that have health product declarations and EPDs and, and, and things of that nature that disclose, you know, what those chemicals are within the materials so that we can design around that and choose those products and adhesives and things of that nature that are are less harmful Um, because, you know, there's thousands of chemicals that are utilized that are all around us and just, you know, making sure you make the right decisions and be mindful Mm -hmm. about that is really important. And it, it goes a long way to just improving the, not only the broader air quality, but, you know, the health of the occupants, right? Because, you know, we spend right. a lot of our time indoors, you know, and if we're going to be, you know, in those particular places, whether it's at home or at work, being able to design around that really makes a, a big impact. Right, exactly. Well, as it relates to, to businesses and even homeowners, because I, I'm sure homeowners probably don't think about this as much as we do in the commercial sector, I guess, what are some of the ways that individuals can help minimize their impact you know, outside of the maybe obvious ones in terms of, you know, doing carpools or mass transit and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Are there other things on the table that people should be looking at?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, I will say that the number one thing that we all do every day that impacts our air quality is our daily commute. So like you said, those, those are maybe the obvious choices, but being very mindful of how you choose to get to work or how you choose to make a trip. If you can get out of your car or, you know, and get on a transit or walk or bike or at least fill up every seat of your car so that we're moving more people per vehicle, that's great. If you can't do that, then doing something or getting a vehicle whenever you go to purchase something new, getting the cleanest thing available, which perhaps could be an electric vehicle, would be a great choice and something that's both fuel efficient and has a a very low emission rate because, by the way, those are not one and the same, but that's a whole other topic. But aside from that, just being mindful and thinking through how often your car is on. So when you go to run errands, for example, you need to go to the dry cleaners, you need to go to the grocery store, you're going to pick up a gift for a birthday party to make a little bit of a plan and do all of those things one after another in one outing. We call that trip chaining. Instead of going out to do groceries, bring it back home and then out to get your gift and then bring it back home because then you're able to basically operate more efficiently. Things like reducing idling. So we've all been there, right? We all pull up to the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and it's wrapped around the building twice. Maybe that's a good sign to go ahead and park and go inside and save that bit of time that you're idling in the drive-through because every one of those tailpipes that's wrapped around that building is putting out a little bit of pollution and so just being mindful and being conscious of how those those things can be impactful and another thing that a lot of people may not put two and two together on is water conservation about 50 percent of most cities electricity bills are associated with pumping water Well, how do you produce electricity largely at power plants. And so the more we can conserve water, the less water has to be pumped, the less energy has to be produced to get that water through the pipeline. And so everything is connected. And a lot of times we grow up and we think, well, water is over here and soil is over here and air is over here. And they're all very much connected uh, if you really look into the processes that go into getting all of our resources everywhere that they go. And so just being conscious of that. Um, would be
0: very helpful yeah the the one one on water, I think that's one that people don't think about quite a bit and that energy water nexus and how they mm-hmm. they're related, and the fact that you know there's a statistic that I had come across a couple of months back you know that North Texas is like one of the top users of water yes in the Texas region and if probably even beyond that, and a lot of it has to do with landscape. Irrigation mm-hmm. and water usage and maintaining those and things of nature, obviously, you know, inefficient plumbing fixtures and leaks uh, is another big one. And so, yeah, being mindful of that, even though it's not directly related, is, is going to have an impact. So that's good.
1: Definitely. And then also for, you know, the I believe part of your core audience, again, are, are the folks who work in building design and architecture and things like that. And one thing that I would really challenge the development community to consider is how they play a role in helping people be able to make a choice on getting a cleaner vehicle, especially when it comes to electric vehicles. It's easier for people who live in a single-family home who are able to plug in a car in their garage. We would encourage developers and builders to start thinking about making sure that there's a 220, 240-volt service available in the garage so that in the future if somebody wants to buy an electric car they have a place to plug it in but where it really gets important is in multifamily developments and people who don't have a garage at home and we know stories of several people who live in apartment complexes and have approached their management asking hey can I pay on my dime to have a charger installed so that I can buy an electric car and their apartment management is telling them no and so that becomes an absolute obstacle to somebody who wants to be able to buy a zero emission vehicle and can't because they don't have a plate most people who drive electric vehicles are going to charge them overnight at home that's where it you know it's going to take eight hours it's very slow it's good for the battery low and slow is always the the best for battery um, life and that's an issue. And so, for multifamily developments to start thinking about providing some charging stations um, as part of their new construction, if it's built in from the get go, it costs pennies to get the extra electrical put into place right out the gate, as opposed to going in and retrofitting after the fact. So, I just throw that idea out there for people to consider those who work on um, building design and construction.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I see it all the time, too, you know, especially on those developer-driven projects where, you know, they may not want to add that to their budget, even though, like you mentioned before, it's, you know, less costly to do it up front as opposed to retrofit. Uh, And then, you know, even now, Tesla and some of the other ones, they even have uh, programs available where they will install them and maintain them for free uh, to a certain degree or a certain quantity for projects like that. And I know that certain programs, you know, may have come out of uh, commission where they may not do that anymore, but, you know, I think it's still an opportunity, especially if you have larger projects where you have that level of influence and reach that, you know, I'm sure that something like that could be negotiated upfront.
1: Right, right. And there are incentive programs available from the state. There's one that's gonna be coming out probably Around December 2019, and then another one most likely in spring of 2020. And those mm-hmm. programs will pay 50% of the cost of installing charging infrastructure. And so, multifamily developments and workplaces are two of the target sectors where we would like to see new infrastructure and where those incentives can be directed. So, if anybody is interested in that, go to dfwcleancities.org and look at our electric vehicles initiative, and we can get you linked up to all that incentive information.
0: Awesome. Well, I know you've been uh, working with the Council of Governments for a a while now, and what would you feel is the most challenging part of your job?
1: Well, a lot has to do with uh, just keeping up with the constant evolution of technology. And as we kind of hinted at with the development of the Internet of Things and connected and autonomous vehicles and not being able to predict where that technology is going to take us, Um, the Council of Governments is responsible for long-range transportation planning. We actually have to plan our transportation system 25 years out, and that's very, very hard to do when we're in such a state of technology flux right now. Uh, So that's really challenging. And then on the air quality side, it can be really difficult to maintain people's interest in the ozone issue and commitment to continuing to work on strategies that help reduce ozone formation because it's kind of like we're the boy who cried wolf you know back in the late 90s we were like oh we're in ozone non entertainment we have to get down to 85 then we're like well, we made it to 85 now we have to get down to 75 and now we're working towards getting down to 70 and some people can lose interest over time and they're like eh, the ozone thing it's it's you know that's old school but it's still something that we need to pay attention to it's still a health problem there's still environmental impacts there's you know, impacts to our community. And so that's still something that requires our attention. Climate, of course, requires our attention too. There is a little bit of a link between ozone and climate. If we have more hot days, those days are the days that we're most likely to have higher ozone. So whether you're interested in carbon and climate issues or ozone, and air quality, and respiratory issues, you know, the amount of pollution that comes out of our transportation system and as a byproduct of other combustion should be of interest to all of us.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and you, you kind of alluded to it. I think the health focus is, should be the biggest driver of all, right? Because it impacts us, mm-hmm. our lives. When you talk about the people that develop those respiratory illnesses, you know, and kids that have asthma and adults that have asthma and other illnesses and things of that nature are highly affected by this kind of stuff. And, you know, when there are ways, you know, from a design standpoint that you can help minimize that or improve that quality, then, you know, that's a, that's a really, really great thing.
1: Right. And for people who aren't familiar with ozone, just as a little hint, when you watch the weather report for the next day, if you hear the, the news guy on the weather say, Tomorrow's going to be an orange day, orange means that the ozone levels are going to be high enough that it's unhealthy for sensitive groups if it's going to be a red day, it's unhealthy for everybody. And if it's a yellow day, it's, eh, it's under the EPA standard. So people who are particularly sensitive may still feel a little bit of an impact, um, but it's those orange days, red days, and then purple days are really bad, but we haven't had one of those in, in a very long time. And so if you watch your weather report, I know several of the channels are very good and very consistent about mentioning orange-red alerts. And right. those are the days to maybe limit your exposure outside. You know, if you have outdoor practices for sports or something like that, maybe you can ask for those practices to be moved indoors. And then also the days to be a little extra uh, mindful of, you know, hey, let me try to take as few trips as possible. Maybe I don't mow the grass that day. Maybe I don't go through the drive-through that day because those are the days that are predicted to have the higher ozone. And if we can turn off the engines as much as possible, we can maybe keep that ozone
0: a little bit lower. I see. Okay. Yeah. And and on that, I think I I didn't say the project, but the project that uh, I was working on in Salt Lake City, after doing some research uh, in preparation for that project, we had found out that, you know, certain transportation, mass transit in Salt Lake City offer either discounted or either free rides on high ozone days or really just poor air quality days to keep people from being outside for extended periods. You know, I know that, for individuals that bike to work or walk to work or things of that nature uh, is obviously much better. But when the air quality is poor, you don't want people to be outside like that. So,
1: Right, right.
0: My last question here for you, in one of the resources uh, you provided, which I'll share as well, in terms of the regional air quality initiatives, there's quite a few, which I think all of them are impactful and applicable to uh, help reducing and improving air quality. I think to date, Correct me if I'm wrong, there were eight different initiatives?
1: Oh goodness, um, they have come and gone over the years. So there's a lot, <laughs> but yeah. And the ones that I in particular work on, one of the ones that that takes the most of my time and attention and that I really enjoy the most is Dallas-Fort Worth Clean Cities and um, within that our electric vehicles program. And so, so working on all of the alternative fuels I'm very proud to say that in our region, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport and uh, both Dallas Area Rapid Transit and Trinity Metro run bus fleets that are all natural gas. Uh, There are no diesel buses in service by any of those three agencies, and they run a lot of buses. So that's one of the big accomplishments over the last 20 years. Of course, it didn't happen overnight, but... There's a lot of other parts of the country that are still trying to replace old diesel buses, and we've had really good partners here that have been early adopters and making those advancements early, and now are are starting to dabble in electric buses, which is great. So that's been really fun, and we also have a, a solar initiative, Go Solar Texas, which is not directly related to transportation, but is related to air quality, where we work to develop a lot of sample documents and template documents and try to improve the level of standardization from one city to the next throughout North Texas. So if a solar installation company is going to do something in Grapevine versus Plano versus Mesquite, they're hopefully are getting more consistent messaging and more consistent responses from the cities. So we actually worked with six of our cities to get them designated as soul smart communities, which means that they've set up their regulations and their uh, permitting processes and things like that in a way that is more friendly to the solar industry. And so we were very proud to get those, those six cities kind of across the goal line and get them designated through the soul smart program.
0: Nice. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, I think all of this information was incredibly useful, not only for myself, that I can take back and find how, you know, those can be some synergies to the projects that I work on in those cities and jurisdictions. But even for, you know, the citizens of the community to be able to just have, you know, while it may seem a small role, I think at scale with enough people, it obviously has a much, much larger impact than many people can imagine. And so I think they'll find this very, very useful as well.
1: I hope so. Yeah, you get 7 million people in one urban area, and yeah, <laughs> very <laughs> small decisions times 7 million makes an
0: impact. So, yeah. well, great. We'll um, look forward to talking to you again soon, and uh, we'll definitely make sure we get our listeners to get your info to get connected with you if they have questions.
1: Sounds great. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. And bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to 3P Theory with Mike Brown. If you like our show and want to know more, check out 3Ptheory.com or please leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Join us next time for more insightful knowledge on high-performance building design.